Today, um, after three and a half months in the book of Ephesians, we are finished. So it's kind of like this weird space to be in. You know, where, where do we go? What do we do? We will be starting a new series again next week, but we are having a one-off sermon this week, just kind of a standalone message, which I'm excited to share with you. But I did want to let you, if you um, didn't know this, we do have a website and we do have an iTunes podcast. So if you do want to kind of follow along and listen to the sermons that we preached in the past, if you're sick one week, if you're away one weekend and you don't hear what we're sharing and just want to kind of follow along, all of those messages are saved online. So you can subscribe to our podcast download messages from the website and track with what's going on. Also, if you're newer to this church and you just want to learn and grow, then we've gone through a lot of helpful series in the past, which will help answer some of your questions and help you grow in your faith and help you to know Jesus and his ways a little bit better. I'm currently 32. And as I'm getting older and older, um, one of the things I'm learning about myself is I'm starting to enjoy biographies and documentaries more and more. I think that is like a getting older kind of thing. So at the moment, I'm reading a, a biography called Paul the Apostle by N.T. Wright. It's actually an amazing book. I've really been enjoying just uh, getting into some of the details of Paul's life as one of my heroes. And recently, I watched a couple of documentaries, too. And this one documentary that Shell and I both watched really like it struck us. It was called Three Identical Strangers. And this documentary, I won't give the whole thing away. Has anyone watched it before? No one's seen it? I won't spoil the story for you, but I will tell you a little bit of what it's about. It starts with this man. And this guy is young, he's 19 years old, and he goes to university, starting his first year at this college. And as he lands on campus, you can imagine just being a little bit nervous, a little bit uncertain, a little bit of unsure of what he's going to experience. He just finds people incredibly friendly. Everywhere he goes, everyone he speaks to is just warm to him. He's getting high fives and hugs and handshakes. People are greeting him well. Some people are calling him by the wrong name, but he doesn't think anything of that at all. He just thinks people are taking a shot in the dark. And he gets to his dorm room after kind of walking around campus. And as he goes inside, someone comes up to him and says, man, you told me you weren't going to be here this year. What's going on? He goes, sorry, I I think you've got me confused for someone else. This is my first day on campus. I wasn't here last year. What do you mean? This guy goes, there is no way. Like, there is no way. You are my friend's doppelganger. You are a dead ringer for my friend, John. And he looks at him, and for some reason this film really highlights the fact that this guy had kind of short, stubby fingers and hands. He says, you sound like him. Your smile is like him. You, You look like you're separated from birth. He's like, let's call him up now. And he phones this friend, John, and they start speaking on the phone, and their voices are exactly the same. And they start talking, and they say, when were you born? They were born on exactly the same day. At what hospital? They were born in the same hospital. I was adopted by a family. I was adopted, too, through the same adoption agency, and their worlds are rocked. This guy and his friend, his new friend, hop in a car and drive three hours to get to this guy's house, And at about midnight, they knock on the door and go inside, and these two men meet each other for the first time in 19 years, and it's like two mirror images looking at each other, different clothes, slightly different hair, but they are without doubt twins separated from birth. And almost straight away, the guy says, within minutes, they were on the floor wrestling as two brothers who loved each other and had like wanted to make up for lost time, you know? They'd missed each other all of these years. And obviously this went viral. This went massive. This was on the front page of every news uh, paper. This was on TV. They were being interviewed. This was a big deal kind of feel-good story about these twins separated at birth, somehow being reconciled after 19 years. And then after a couple of days, a phone call comes through. It's a guy who says, hey, sorry, I don't want to be weird or anything, 
But I think I might be your third identical twin. I might be your triplet. This guy comes in and he meets these two brothers and he was born on the same day at the same hospital and adopted by a family through the same adoption agency. And these triplets just explode. All of a sudden they're making cameos in movies, they're on every talk show, they're kind of doing a tour around the country, being interviewed. People want to know about these triplets separated at birth. They quickly move in together, they start a restaurant together, start a business together. These three are absolutely inseparable. And this movie kind of builds like this. It's a documentary, this is a true story, I'm not making this up. kind of builds like this of the excitement of these three brothers meeting each other after 19 years of being separated. And then it kind of twists in the middle and goes down with this dark reality that these triplets had intentionally been separated by a psychologist or for scientific research about nature and nurture. What is it like for three people from the same family with the same DNA pool to be separated and to grow up in different homes? And how does that shape them? I'm not going to tell you any more about the documentary, but it's a really, really interesting story. I'm sorry to let you down, Jasmine. It's nice to meet you today. Um, But that's an incredible story. That is an incredible story. Everyone in this room has got a story today. Not all of them as radical and crazy as something like that. But I want to ask you today, what is your story? And what is your story with God? If you were to think through your life, however many years that has been, what are the highs and lows, the ups and downs? What are kind of like the key moments or the themes that run their way all the way through your story? And maybe what are those kind of crazy cliffhanger, end of chapter, page turner moment in your lives where God is doing something new or different? I've been in church since I was 12, and I've heard a lot of different people share their stories. I remember probably being 14 or 15, and I was in Sarnia at um, this kind of convention or conference, Assemblies of God event, and while I was there, um, this man on the final night got up to share his story. I guess he was in his mid-30s, and this was kind of the big evening, the big moment of this conference, and he had a hellraiser of a story to share. And this guy started to speak about how he had rejected God altogether. Not only had he rejected God, but he'd kind of gone the other way. He'd become a Satanist. He'd gotten involved in devil worship and animal sacrifice and all sorts of things. He was addicted to drugs. He was an alcoholic. And he started to speak and describe these moments where he would... But this guy's sharing this story about how him and his friends, him and his coven or his crew, would go to the Kloof Gorge and they would sacrifice animals to Satan and they would take drugs and they would engage in orgies and there was all of this stuff going on. It was one of those big bad stories, you know. This in the movement that I grew up in, these were the kind of stories we like to share. You needed to have a big bad story if you were going to be telling people about how Jesus had changed your life. And I think for me, like I've always felt like that's just not my story. (laughs) I don't know if any of you have a story like that in this room. I feel like I've always had such a beige, bland testimony, you know. I kind of used to wish that I had some crazy sin, scandal, demon stories as part of my past. Or that actually I had some more interesting tidbits that I could share when I spoke about how Jesus had saved me. I wish I had two twin brothers or triplet brothers separated somewhere that I didn't know about that I could share with you today. But that's just not my story, you know. I was born into an amazing, stable family. Uh, My parents have been loving and supportive from the day I was born. I actually saw them yesterday. I had a nice little lunch with them and caught up. But um, the home I grew grew up in was consistent. 
My parents loved my sister and I. It was not perfect, but I don't remember any traumatic moments or crazy moments growing up in that home. It was fairly idyllic and perfect and easy and protected and safe. And now you'd almost expect this to be the twist. You know, if this was a movie, this is where the but would come in. But there just isn't. That is not my story. I remember growing up in a home where my parents would take us to church maybe twice a year, Christmas and Easter, some years, not every year, and we wouldn't go every holiday. But we would grow up in that kind of environment with Bibles in our homes. My dad, from time to time, would read us a Bible story. And we'd grow up kind of believing we were Christians, but knowing there was a difference between us and a lot of other Christians. I I had these people at school who were Christians, but in a different way to me. They went to church every weekend. And more than that, beyond them just being like good, it seemed like they knew Jesus, or they knew about Jesus, or seemed to love Jesus, or there was a depth to their Jesus relationship that was beyond just information, you know. So I knew that I was different to them. And if I think about it now, probably what us Clarks believed was that you should be a good person and one day you'll go to the good place. And that was kind of like our th- like worldview or something like that. And if I think about what it meant for me to be a good person growing up in this home, it probably meant behave at school, get good grades, work hard, don't do any of the bad things, like swear or steal or lie or take drugs and listen to your parents. My story is not this wild out there story. My story is of a good guy doing good things, really wanting to have people's approval and to prove myself. And in matric, I got the Good Fellowship Award, which was kind of like the cherry on top. After these 17 years of my life, it was like me trying to live for people's approval and to be perfect or to be a good guy or to be good enough was kind of validated with this award. You get the Good Fellowship Award. Your peers have voted you a good guy, Grant. And I've got these weird moments of failure that are kind of etched into my story. Like these moments that to you maybe you wouldn't care about at all, but like they were significant to me. I remember failing an English and a science assignment the same year at school and failing badly. I'm talking like 19% crash and burn. And I wasn't, I was trying. Like it wasn't like I wasn't trying. I just absolutely tanked these assignments. Some of you are giving me weird faces. I know your story might be a bit more dramatic than mine, but this is my story. And I think growing up, like these moments of failure and devastation were really like significant in kind of who I was becoming and what was shaping me, you know? At high school, I wanted to prove myself. I wanted to do well. I wanted to be liked. And failing at varsity or at school or getting dumped by a girlfriend or the time that I was fired by my waitering job because I made some mistakes were really devastating moments for me, as silly as that might seem. At high school, I was proving myself. You know, I wanted to do well. And probably another one of those failure moments for me was in grade six at the end of the year when they were announcing new prefects. And I was waiting because I was desperate to be a prefect. And the list started to run through. And at the end of the list, I hadn't been chosen. I was rejected. Now, to me, that was like a failure. I don't know if I've ever told anyone this before, but to me, that was like a deep fissure of failure that ran through my soul. And in grade 11, at the end of the year, as they were picking prefects for grade 12, I remember almost like hanging on the edge of my seat. Will I make it? Will I be chosen this year? And I was chosen. Grant Clark, C. 
I was probably the first name read out. And I walked to the front probably very ordinarily, but inside it was like there were fireworks going off and there was this hallelujah chorus playing, you know. I had been chosen. It was my redemption story because I had failed in grade six. I hadn't been chosen and now I had been chosen for this role. And I felt like almost there was this psychic blast that went out all around Durban. And all of those teachers that hadn't chosen me in grade six knew they had made a mistake. They'd chosen the wrong kids in grade six. And I had proved myself. I had shown them I was good enough to be a prefect, you know. Proving myself was a really big part of my story. And probably in grade 11 and 12, my metric for success started to change. I think for me, probably these authority figures, what my parents, what teachers thought of me, had mattered a lot until I got to the end of my school career. Now all of a sudden, what my friends thought of me started to matter more. So my priorities shifted. And what was good and bad for me started to shift, not because moral absolutes had changed, but because what my friends thought was good and bad changed. So I would change my behavior and do certain things so that they would like me and approve of me. To me, salvation became the approval of this group of people and damnation became their rejection. That's some of my story. So I think what I would do in high school is I would drink more and I would do wilder stuff than my friends because I wanted them to think I was amazing. You know, This was currency for being cool at high school. And then just before I turned 18, I started going to a different church, and it was almost like God started to do some stuff in my heart, and the gospel started to come alive to me. And all of a sudden, I started to understand Jesus and his message in a different way. And again, my priorities were changing, from caring about the approval of my parents and authority figures to the approval of my friends. Now, all of a sudden, the approval of God was starting to matter more and more and more. And that's why in the timeline of my story, I know that on my 18th birthday was the last time I got drunk. And that might seem like a silly part of my story, but I know that, and that's marked there, because after that it was like I started to respond to the ways of Jesus. I started to respond to what he said was right. And I started to swing to value what he valued and find my identity in him rather than all of these other things. And if I'm honest... As much as I was responding to God, there were a few things in me that took a while to catch up. For a while, I think I I wanted God's approval, but I understood getting his approval according to the old way of how I'd done the things before. So I would try harder and do more and try and earn God's love. I don't know if it was by like praying more or doing more churchy things or trying to be a better person or whatever it was, but I would try and earn God's approval and love and pleasure by doing in the way I had done it with my friends and my parents and authority figures before. The only problem is that's not Christianity. I know we've spent quite a long time in the book of Ephesians, but there was a verse out of Ephesians which really impacted my story and helped me to understand that the way I was going about this whole thing was not right. And it's in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. It says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In my in my mind before, I'd been aiming at all these targets, trying to hit all of these bullseyes through what I did. And if I did them, if I hit the bullseye, if I hit that target, I was successful. I'd earned this thing. I'd proved myself, you know. But the only problem with that is in every single day, you've got to do that again and again and again and again. You've got to be perfect. You've got to prove yourself. You've got to earn this approval, all of those things. And failure was such a big thing because failure was rejection. Failure was death. So you had to be perfect. You had to get everything right. So I tried and I tried 
But what Ephesians 2 is teaching me is that God offers us a salvation apart from what we do. It's a salvation based on what Jesus has done. So all of a sudden, I started to see that I don't need to prove myself because Jesus has already proven himself. And there's nothing that I can earn from what I do. Jesus has already earned it all by what he did on the cross. My understanding of all of the stuff was trying to ch- was changing. And I was seeing that the gospel is this good news, not just for people with crazy stories, people who are Satan worshippers taking drugs and involved in orgies in the gorge, but it's also a message for good people trying really hard, trying to earn acceptance and earn approval through what we do. That actually for all of us, the gospel is rest and it's peace and it's comfort and it's freedom and it's forgiveness and it's finding a new relationship with God. See, the gospel is not just for good people, bad people or moral people or immoral people. The gospel is not just for Satanists, it's also for churchgoers. And this message was starting to get into my heart more and more and to change me. And I'm so glad that that message of try harder and do more and earn your way through is not the way that we get to God. If that's the way you're trying to climb high enough to get to God, I want you to know you're not going to make it. But the message of Jesus is that he came down, that he came all the way down to us and he sought us out and he found us and he did everything that needed to be done so that we could be right with God. What is your God's story today? I realize some of you in this room maybe don't believe in Jesus or are exploring Jesus or are looking into this Christianity thing. And I realize also some of us have got Jesus on the outskirts. You know, we kind of know the story of our life and Jesus is kind of over there, but he's not in the center. I, th- I think my greatest desire today would be that for each of us we left here and Jesus was at the center of our story. He was the main part of the story of our lives. In 1 Peter 3 verse 15, Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends and apostles, writes and says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And if you're here today and you're already a follower of Jesus, like my hope today is actually you would leave here and you would start to think more and more about your own story with Jesus. That you would leave here and start to think, okay, how do the pieces of my story fit together? Because um, Peter wants us to know why. We have a hope in Jesus. He wants us to be able to defend this hope that we've got in him, be able to share it with other people. And even as I speak a little bit today, I'm hoping that you would put the pieces together of your story, that you would be able to share it with others and help them to know Jesus too. The God story of Paul the Apostle appears three times in the book of Acts. It's in Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. And I think it's put there in three different times and three different ways to three different audiences. One, so that we know that our stories are really important. And two, so that actually we'll start to process our own stories so that we could share them with others. Paul was always ready to share his story with other people. And this morning, I want to just share a little bit of Paul's story with you. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Acts 22. Otherwise, it will come up on the screen just behind me. We'll start with Paul's origin story. Acts 22 verse 3. Paul says, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia. That's modern day Turkey. He says, but brought up in this city. He's talking about Jerusalem. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for all, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Now this is Paul's origin story. 
This is where Paul comes from, where his story began. When Paul was just a baby, when Paul was a little boy before he had the apostle at the end of his name, how Paul was shaped and he grew. And I think like recently, there have been a whole lot of movies that have taken this kind of theme. You know, Batman Begins and like X-Men Origins, Wolverine and all of the Spider-Mans. Every single one of them seems to have a story and again and again. But you see in each one of those movies some of the main things that have shaped these characters and made them who they've become. So with Batman or Bruce Wayne, there's always this moment when he's the little boy, this flashback to this time when his parents are killed, and all of a sudden there's this need for justice, this need to fight crime that wells up inside of him. With Peter Parker, Spider-Man, there's always this moment where his Uncle Ben dies, and he knows he wants to defend people. He wants to help those. He wants to stop crime. He wants to stop criminals. Now, in Paul's story, there's no crime, there's no superhero that is made, but we do see these key moments in his story that shape him. Paul was a Jew, and he was born in Tarsus, which was one of these university cities in the Roman Empire. This would have been one of the most educated places in the face of the world at the time. So you can imagine Paul growing up in this home where there are lots of books and lots of conversations about ideas and philosophies, and where his parents are having interesting people around the dinner table all of the time, and they're sharing maybe what they lecture in or what they specialize in or something that they've been reading. And Paul, without knowing it as a young boy, is just growing up, being shaped by this culture and this context. And then somewhere in his childhood, we don't know exactly when, the family moved to Jerusalem. So he goes from this hub of education to this hub of the Jewish faith. All of a sudden, Paul is growing up in Jerusalem at this place where the traditions of his forefathers and the Jewish faith and all of the teachings of the Torah are kind of all over the place. And these two big ideas shape him in a key way as he grows up. And then he starts to train under Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was like this top rabbi, expert in the Torah. This would have been like going to Jewish Harvard for Paul. This was a big deal that he was learning as he grew up as a teenager. And these three moments would have shaped him hugely. And there's a number of moments throughout the Bible where Paul shares his story. But I think one that's gripped me recently is in Philippians chapter 3. Paul's writing to one of these churches that he planted and he's involved in. And he shares his story with them in verse 4 to 7. He says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, because that was a big deal of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I want to ask you today if you have any reason for confidence in the flesh. What do you put your confidence in? Why are you confident today? It could definitely be in Jesus, like Paul is saying, or it could be in your salary, or in your job, in your education, or in your friends, in your romantic partner, in your home. It could be in any one of these things. Do you have confidence in the flesh? Or maybe as I was speaking about, did you grow up finding your confidence in the approval of other people? Paul says, don't put your confidence in all of these things. Put them in Jesus. Philippians 3 verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I think that must be one of the boldest and most arrogant things that is said in the entire Bible. You know, Paul is saying, I don't care who you are. I don't care your story. I don't care your background. I have more reason to stand before God and people and boast about who I am and my background and my life because of the story that I have. His life resume is better than yours no matter what you've done, no matter where you come from. That's what Paul is saying. 
And he gives it to us. Since birth, he's been perfect, according to the way of the Jews. He was born to the right family. He was part of the right crowd. He was educated by the right people. On and on and on he goes. He's got every reason to be confident in his story. And I know some of you are sitting here and you're like, I have the opposite. I have no reason to be confident in my story. What do you put your confidence in? Paul's origin story is incredible. Paul's life is one that we should be amazed at. He says, I had everything going for me. I had it all. But I want to tell you, as someone who had everything going for me, don't put your confidence in that stuff. Don't live for that stuff. Don't build your story on any of that stuff because it's not worth it. Build your life on Jesus instead. What is your origin story? Where did you grow up? What shaped you while you were young? What has made you the person you are today? What gave you value and identity when you were younger? What were some of the key moments of your upbringing that you know are with you to this day? Next, Paul shares his sin with us. And this is quite a huge thing. Acts 22, verse 4 to 5. I persecuted this way, the Christians, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul was killing Christians. Paul was arresting people like you and I because of what we believed and what we did. If I can temporize Paul a little bit, Paul was like a bit of a terrorist bomber. That was the kind of guy he was. He believed in something passionately, and he was willing to kill other people because of his own beliefs. When you see him in that light, you think, sheesh, Paul doesn't seem like the nicest possible guy. And we see this in Scripture. I'm so grateful. Because one of the things God does throughout the Bible is he doesn't let the heroes go without like being tarnished. You know, The Bible shows us people's flaws and failures and sins and brokenness and idols and all of that to show us that they're just like you and I and to show us that they need God's grace just like you and I do too. Maybe here's a few examples throughout the Bible. Noah was a drunk. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Leah was ugly. Joseph was rejected by his own family and sent to prison. Moses was a murderer and had a stutter. Gideon was afraid. Samson was a bit of a sex addict. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah was too young. David was an adulterer. Elijah was suicidal. Jonah ran from God. Job lost everything. He was bankrupt. Mary was a young, unmarried, pregnant girl. Peter denied Jesus three times. The disciples fell asleep while they were praying with Jesus at his moment of need. The Samaritan woman was divorced. Zacchaeus was too small. And Paul murdered and persecuted Christians. I think one of the things that amazes me about the Bible is it shares the sin of its characters. And for each one of us, as we share our Jesus stories with other people, we can't leave out the sin bits. We can't leave out the dark bits. We can't leave out the failure bits. We can't leave out the weakness, vulnerability bits. Those are key parts of what God has done in our lives. And I want to ask you, either today or when Jesus entered your story, how is your life broken? How is your life not the way it was meant to be? How is your relationship with God and other people shaped by other things or different to the way God had designed it to be? And why? <coughs> Thirdly, Jesus enters Paul's story. This is a huge turning point in this narrative. Acts 22 verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. 
And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice or the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all, uh, by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. We've seen so much of Paul's story already. And now it's like, enter Jesus. He comes into the story in a big way. And I think what I love about Paul's story is Paul doesn't make it sound like Paul saved the day. Paul is not the hero of his story. Jesus is. Paul shows that he needed to be saved. In fact, Paul was obviously so stubborn and obstinate, Jesus had to appear to him in a significant way. Knock him off his horse, bright lights, significant three days without being able to see or eat or anything like that. Jesus had to break into his life in a huge way. Paul isn't bragging about himself, saying that he saved himself. He's bragging about Jesus, saying Jesus came into the story and saved him. Jesus literally broke into his life and washed away his sins and forgave him for the murders and the persecution and the crime and all of the sins and all of the things that he was involved in. I want to ask you today, how has Jesus come into your life? What has he needed to forgive inside of you? What has he needed to wash clean inside of your life? How has he needed to save you? What has he needed to save you from? Paul's story was completely redefined by Jesus. This wasn't just like a small addition to his life. Jesus redefined everything about him. In Philippians 3 verse 8, Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And there's two words in there that have really impacted me. It's surpassing worth and rubbish. Surpassing worth and rubbish. The word surpassing worth is this Greek word, um, hyper echo. I'm probably not getting it right. My Greek's not the best. Hyper echo, the super thing. That's what Paul is saying. I've given my life for the super thing because everything else is rubbish, is scubalon, is poop. Poop, this word scubalon, was something that actually youths would kind of uh, graffiti on the wall in the ancient Roman Empire. You know, this was like a bad word. You know, I've given up the rubbish, the scubalon, the poop for the super thing that is Jesus. Nothing compares to him. He's of greater worth than absolutely everything. Paul's life made this incredible 180 from where he was living, what he was doing, what he was giving himself for. And now Jesus has redefined him. He has a new identity, a new life, a new purpose, a new everything inside of Christ. Has your life changed in that way? Have you been redefined by Jesus? Have you made this kind of 180 turning to follow him? Has your identity been changed, your purpose been changed, your mission been changed, your life been changed by him? Because Paul comes and becomes a completely new man. 
Paul's life is never the same. From Acts 8 and Acts 9, we see Paul's life takes on a completely different course as he follows the call of God and he serves Jesus for him. All of a sudden, he becomes a missionary and a church planter and a preacher and all of those things. Maybe for you, you're a doctor or an IT specialist or an architect or something like that. But you're doing it with Jesus right at the center. Paul's life was redefined by Jesus and what he did. And I know for my life, something like that happened too. Maybe not as radically, maybe not as powerfully as Paul's. I love Paul's story so much. But when Jesus came into my story, I was redefined. I can't understand all of the intimate inner workings of it, but I believed something that I didn't believe before. I was living for something that I didn't live for before. Some truth just came alive to me. It was like the lights went on, and I couldn't but serve this Jesus. He was obviously real, and he was everything to me. And all of a sudden, things started to change, where before I was trying to be good enough and prove myself and earn God's love and earn other people's approval on all of these things, and all of a sudden, that stuff came from him. I don't know who of you have watched American Idol before. Maybe once or twice. At least Nate's watched it. Nate and I did. Remember those good old American Idol marathons? I was thinking about it, and um, that's one of the most watched shows of all time. You know, it's an incredibly successful show. Obviously, it's been syndicated all around the world. We had idols here, all over. That stuff's going on. But imagine being on that show. This is your dream. Like, you want to make it big. You want to do music professionally. You want to record albums. You want to sell CDs, all of that stuff. And now you get there to that first interview, you know, that first kind of appearance before the judges. You've stood in that line for, I don't know, 37 hours. And now you're standing in front of them, and you know this next minute determines the rest of your life. So you've got to perform. You need to earn your place. You want that golden ticket, you know. So you sing, and at the end, you hopefully get it. But it's not like it's over now. Every single week, every single Sunday or whatever it is, or twice a week, you need to perform again in front of those judges and in front of those crowds and earn your way to the next place and the next place and the next place. And each time in a way it gets harder because you're closer to winning and you're closer to the prize, but you're also closer to losing and your dreams being absolutely dashed. And I was thinking about this. Like, Imagine getting up there on that stage and you're in front of those judges Now, Simon Cowell, terrifying. I can't remember who any of the other ones were. Some of them were nice. Some of them were tough. But you've got to impress them, these experts who really know what they're talking about. On top of that, you're singing to a room of people, which is bigger than any room you've sung to before for most of those people. This is very intimidating. And then on top of that, you've got all of these cameras pointed at you, and this signal of you singing is going out to people all around the world, armchair critics like me, sitting on my couch as you walk out onto the stage going, you wanted to wear that today? You did that with your hair or your makeup. You chose that song. Oh, you're going to sing it that way, judging everything about what these people do. And you know that. I was trying to work it out. I think for some of those finales, there must have been over 100 million people watching these people perform on stage. That's pressure. And you know that if you make one mistake, you mess up with one note, you do one thing wrong, you probably will lose, you'll fail, and you won't get the award that you want. That's pressure. But then right at the end of the competition, that last night, whether it's two or three people, I can't really remember, everyone performs, and at the end of the night, somebody wins. They are crowned American Idol or whatever it is. 
They get the recording contract, they get the CD, they get the car, they get the prizes, they get the applause, confetti is everywhere, everyone's cheering, even the people who've lost, they're kind of like, yeah, well done, it's really great for you. And then they get handed the microphone, and now for the first time in the competition, they're not singing to win, they're singing because they've won. The whole way through this competition, every time, it's prove yourself, earn your place, do your best, prove that you should win this prize. And now for the first time, they're not singing for victory, they're singing from victory. It doesn't matter how they do. They've won. They can tank it, they can smash the microphone, they can do absolutely whatever they want up there because it doesn't matter, they've won. And for the first time in the competition, they can just sing for the sheer joy of singing, for the love of it, because this is what they want to do. And that's what the gospel does to each one of us, you know. If before you were like me, trying to earn God's love, prove yourself, show you are good enough, all of a sudden in Christ, Jesus says you were chosen and you were crowned, you've won, here's the mark. You can now live your life without fear of failure or fear of rejection. You can just live your life knowing God's pleasure is on you because you are in Christ. Won't you stand with me? We're going to pray and just worship a bit together. If you don't mind closing your eyes, one of the things we really do love to do here is just respond to what God is saying, and I trust God has spoken to each of you today. But as I've shared my story and as I've shared Paul's story, I hope you've been thinking about your story, what shapes who you are, the person you've become, the trajectory of your life that you're taking. And this really is the good news of the gospel. And my hope is today that for some of you, you would respond even to what Jesus is saying to you now, And for some of you, as we go into this week, you would begin to share the story with other people that they would come to know this grace too. So I just ask you, Holy Spirit, would you come upon us as a crowd? Just think of Paul encountering Jesus in such a significant way, having his sins forgiven and washed clean, coming to find himself as a son of God, a new creation, a new man. If any of you, even now, just need to repent of anything and just turn from stuff and take hold of Jesus, maybe you can just respond to him. You can raise your arms to him. You can pray to him. You can ask him to wash you clean. And if for any of you today, you've come in here today and you know Jesus wasn't at the center of your life. He's not the one defining your story. And today you want him to. Today you want to repent of your sin. You want to put your faith in him. Would you respond to Jesus this morning and begin the journey of following him? Jesus, we just we love you and we need you and we want you. And we ask that you would be the one that defines our story. Amen.